Hi, Jeff here from the University of Kentucky. Ciao, I'm Kristen from the University of Minnesota. Salut, this is Tina from the University of Colorado. And alam, greetings. This is Stuart from the University of Mississippi. Welcome to Pharmacy Fika. A podcast for pharmacy educators by pharmacy educators. Where we discuss teaching and learning, scholarship, and academic life. In Sweden, a fika is a coffee break, but it's much more than that. It's a state of mind and attitude. It's all about slowing down. And finding time for friends and colleagues. While you sip a beverage and enjoy a little something nice to eat. So join us. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the FICA again. It's great to see you all. Just got back from the AACP meeting, which I know some of us got to attend, uh, three of us here today. We actually have a special guest today. Jen Trujillo from the University of Colorado is here with us today for today's topic. But before we get to the topic, I just wanted to check in with people and see how their summer vacations have gone. I think the last time we talked, at least uh, Jeff and Tina were heading out for vacations or trips. I, I got back from Italy myself, and my wife and I went to Idaho, enjoyed a few days there with my son in McCall, Idaho, which was great. The weather was perfect. It hadn't heated up too much yet, unlike the rest of the country now, which is like blazing hot, but it wasn't then. So I'm really grateful. I know, Jen, you were on vacation as well with your family. Do you want to share anything, any special moments from that? Sure. First of all, I'm really happy to be here. So thanks for inviting me. We were in Greece the end of June, first part of July. Um, We were there for two weeks, myself, my husband, my three kids. It was fantastic, beautiful country. We got to go to five or so different places, a couple of the islands, Athens. We spent some time um, on the Peloponnese as well. It was amazing. Lots of food. It sounds awesome. So Tina, I know you were... You were in Italy, and I think elsewhere, too. I don't know. You've been so many places lately. No, that was just the airlines took me to places that I wasn't intending to go, so it added some steps along the way, and on different airlines that I didn't originally book. But I went to Prato, Italy, a small town outside of Florence, for the My Dispense Symposium. So this is a group of users and new users who use the MyD simulation, and we're talking about some new simulations going along with that. And I hadn't been to Prato in uh, several years now because of the pandemic. And it was absolutely overwhelming joy. Like I burst into tears walking from the train station. It was so lovely. Kristen's been there before and she knows it's it's a lovely, delightful community. And I, I just, Amazing. you know, very privileged to be able to participate with that. Yeah, Jeff, I know that you did this fantastic trip with your family. Yeah, we spent two weeks in Costa Rica basically kidnapped my daughter and took her away from the world before she heads off to college. It was a really slow, calm vacation as we spent most of the time just on the beach because we were in a little, very little, small rural town in uh, northwest of Costa Rica. I mean, it was a great vacation, but the biggest memory, though, is on the drive there from the airport where we had a rental car and we had a little Toyota Yaris. And we were following Google Maps like the person told us to go, which you know how Google Maps can sometimes do this. And it was a shortcut. It was the quickest way. 
But as it got darker and darker and the roads got smaller and smaller and curvier and curvier, and then we hit flooded roads that we had to cross with the Toyota Yaris, that was quite an adventure to where we almost thought we were going to have to turn around until we were fortunate enough to see another, I guess, locals that were there in their dirt bikes and how they took a path sort of around that we knew where we could get across. And after that, though, my daughter didn't want to go anywhere that was more than like a 30-minute drive, which is part of the reason why we just stayed on the the Black Sand Beach for the entire time. For anyone who doesn't know what a, a, a Toyota Yaris is, because <laughs> they're not that common of a vehicle, it's tiny and its road clearance is probably like three inches, you know. It's not meant for river crossings. As a former Yaris owner, I can speak to that, but also adventure. if Jeff doesn't find adventure, adventure finds Jeff. <laughs> so, Kristen. Well, Flat Kristen has been to AACP. And that, that would be the, the cardboard head picture of me on a stick. <laughs> so I, I was lucky enough to have Ben Aronson uh, take me there and um, pose me with various people so I could see all my friends and their smiling faces. Yeah, we saw postings on Twitter with you at the meeting, the bobblehead of uh, Kristen Yonke. Yes, yeah. it was super fun. Yes. I was, you know, engaging in some self-care at the pool and I was smelling the flowers and it was all flat, Kristen. So snack choices. I I have my herbal tea today, uh, orange herbal flavored tea, but no um, snack, actually. I I left the house very quickly this morning and didn't bring a snack, although I could probably dig one out of my lunch bag, actually. Well, I am back uh, with my limestone water in Kentucky, um, which tastes a little different than the water in the Gaylord. And I actually have uh, two bites probably of my protein bar left. I was eating my protein, my mid-morning protein snack earlier when I remembered like, oh, we're going to have the podcast. I need to save it. So I have my, I've been holding these two bites left. I just have a water bottle and I found a endangered species chocolate that has luscious blueberries in it. So I am enjoying some chocolate with blueberries. Well, I'm channeling my inner Jeff. I'm having a big glass of water because I'm very feel very dehydrated from all the travel. But I do have my Prato biscotti. The biscotti and Prato are are a very famous type of biscotti, and I brought some home for the staff. Jen, uh, got any snacks with you? Well, after a whole week at the Gaylord, I am also not snacking yet. At, the, at eight, eight o'clock. Um, and I'm enjoying some homemade coffee as opposed to conference coffee. And it, it tastes delightful. <laughs> well, it's terrific to have Jen here with us this morning. It was a terrific conference at AACP, a lot of sense of community there and a wonderful teacher's seminar. I heard so many good comments about it that this year's themes was spot on. And one of the themes was less is more. And we wanted to spend this time this morning on this podcast episode talking a little bit about things like curricular hoarding, trying to overstuff our curriculums, but also like just cognitive overload. We're, I'm guilty of this for sure, of trying to put too much material into what I'm teaching. And it just, you know, 
less is more sometimes. Like we make more space, we actually get better outcomes for that. So that's kind of our conversation this morning. For those who haven't read the editorial by Frank Romanelli, it was from 2020, published in AJPE about curricular hoarding. I think it's a great place to start with this topic. But I know each of us have read different books about how to cut back and gain more from that. So I hope we'll share through those readings what we're kind of learning, what we're trying to do in our own spaces. So yeah, uh, Jen, this was a topic at the teacher seminar and, and tell us a little bit about what people were talking about. Well, I think we we kicked off the day just trying to bring awareness to everyone about this idea that we are predisposed to think about adding more than subtracting. And that was a really great conversation. And you just felt around the room this sense of, yes, uh, everyone is feeling that we are just overwhelmed with red tape and too many things on our to-do list. So I got the sense right away from the audience that everyone was, was feeling that crunch so we spent some time, you know, talking about some of that research. I think Tina has a lot of great examples that we took away from the book Subtract, from the article that was um, published in Nature last year that did those really fantastic, very straightforward studies looking at that human behavior of how do you solve a problem um, and how our natural tendency is to add. And sometimes we don't even see the subtraction part as a component. Um, yeah, I found the work by Lottie Klotz really fascinating. I think, you know, the studies are very well designed. I was actually having a conversation with somebody who teaches evidence-based medicine at their school. You know, I said, you know, we always use clinical studies in our evidence-based medicines courses. Why wouldn't we look at a study like this, you know, that will, will help to inform that? Subtraction is not the always the appropriate strategy. It's not the only appropriate strategy, but to cue ourselves to consider it as we're looking at our curriculum, our policies, our lifestyles. I think in a curricular sense, the challenge is it requires a great deal of trust and psychological safety. So I was thinking, um, actually, probably yesterday on the, the plane ride home, reflecting on AACP. And because of the teacher seminar that was focused on uh, simplifying things and uh, the council faculties faculty affairs committee that Jen tasked me with leading about uh, curricular hoarding all of this was on my mind and it was kind of interesting going through kind of both sides one there was uh, you know we're always trying to solve problems a lot of problems and in session after session in a variety of different things there was like okay we need to do more of this or we need to add this there was a whole there was still a whole lot of adding and I know now, now I'm primed to look for that. I may not have noticed that before, but I've also, and I was also probably primed for this as well, I did sense a whole lot of people getting frustrated with the mores or the more complex and this um, desire that we all have to like, let's simplify things to make all of our lives easier. Jeff, I totally noticed that too, just even from this, the beginning when I was going to the board meeting thinking about, you know, the policy statements or recommendations coming out of committees, discussions at many of the different sessions. So many of 
the end results were adding requirements, adding things to the curriculum, adding policies, which all need added resources. So I think from the meeting perspective, I came away with, you know, how can we start trying to solve these problems? And at the teacher seminar, I was really focusing more with my conversations with teachers about how to manage overload in their own individual content areas or their own individual courses. And those are, you know, two similar but separate issues that we have to have to tackle and, and different strategies to, to get there. Jen gave some really good examples um, in the teacher seminar about the area that she teaches in diabetes and the evolution of that. Yeah, I got a lot of um, comments from the group, like, so what did you do? (laughs) Uh, But also other folks that teach uh, diabetes. I was reflecting, I've been teaching diabetes for 20 plus years and remember my slides early on when the pathophysiology, you know, was three organs and the medications, there were three of them. And since then, the pathophysiology diagram is incredibly, incredibly more complicated uh, to, to teach. The medications in diabetes, as you all know, have exploded. The increase in technology related to diabetes management the increase in delivery with telehealth and, and things like that have all expanded. And I love all of that. This is my passion area. So I, of course, think all of it is absolutely crucial to teach, right? Because it's it's my baby, but I still only have X amount of hours in which to teach it. So there's the struggle. And then I start to pontificate in my head about how I'm going to do that And at the same time, I'm thinking about Stuart's point of cognitive overload and trying so desperately to be really disciplined to not just add slides, which is the easier solution, but remembering that that short-term working memory has a very limited capacity and adding slides is not doing me or my students any favors. I think one of the hardest things, though, is that if you're thinking about, oh, less is more, there's, I think there's a natural tendency to assume that the solution's going to be easy. Like subtracting should be easy, but the solution is very hard and it takes time and energy and discipline to cut your material down. And we've all been there when our abstracts are. 500 words and we have to spend hours getting it down to 250 and it's that same principle that it's not going to be an easy solution but it's the right solution yeah um i always try and think about what's underneath all of the faculty behaviors and i think jen's done a beautiful job describing like what's in our head as we try and walk through this subtraction and I wonder, I wonder if we need to do a better job of giving faculty permission to trim. I think faculty feel a lot of pressure to be the expert, to convey their expertise, to demonstrate their value, and that gets portrayed in things like hours. I, I need to have so many hours that are mine, and I need to have this course that is mine, and that's how you know, my identity is built and how my value is seen. 
And if I trim, my goodness, what if the students don't perform well? Then people then people will come after me and and think I'm not an expert or think I haven't done a good job. I'll be charged with, you know, needing to improve things and how do we create a different environment where it's okay to trim things? It's okay to think critically about our content. It's okay for it to be smaller and we will still be valued. Our recognition will still be visible. Yeah, if it's a little bumpy along the way as we're learning things, that that's okay too. That we're moving in the right direction and how do we value that people are trying to move in the right direction? I mean, I think one of the struggles is, as Jen alluded to it, is the world is more complicated today. It has more to learn and know, like just as diabetes management has evolved, there's a lot more to know. If you want to be good in that space, there's a lot to know. And that's that's true in every therapeutic area. As, as our knowledge of the world expands, the problem is our, our students and even we as individuals, as human beings, can't possibly know all of that, <laughs> you know, know all of the things that need to be known. Mm. And I, yeah, I, this, this struggle between we, our society is becoming more specialized and we need more specialists in order to deliver the promise of all this wonderful knowledge. But we need to train at a starting point, some people who have understanding of the basic principles so that they can then build from that and build their expertise because each person will become expert expert at something. Not everyone's going to become a diabetes expert like Jen and myself. Um, but how do we lay a foundation that everyone is capable of building their expertise from that? Uh, that, I think, is the struggle. It's like, where's the line? <laughs> But yeah, I, I, you know, what is the foundational knowledge that all of our graduates need? And then, then the other part of this is we still have a licensure and examination that tries to do a waterfront understanding that they have, everyone has this fund of knowledge that's very vast and expansive. And that NAPLEX exam could cover anything, including every single drug that Gen you know, tries not to go into depth about. I think it's a huge issue, Stuart, and it's um, the accreditation requirements, the NAPLEX exam have all just expanded tremendously. We've, we have all of this content to include without increasing time, and it's just not feasible to do that, nor, in my opinion, is it necessary because we know content changes and we should be focusing our energy on the skills to be able to find solutions and find doses as opposed to, to memorizing those things. But I think that there's a real challenge because folks worry that when we start putting limits on um, the content or the outcomes that we want, that we slow the progression of the profession forward, right? So there's that tendency to put all, you know, any new thing that comes up, we've got to add it to the NAPLEX, we've got to add it to the accreditation requirements. And it doesn't mean that that's the end. When students graduate, that is not the end of what they're going to be capable of doing in different practice settings. It's just the beginning. It, it brings me back, Jeff, to the Essentialism book, where the first step is to really kind of tease out the very crucial core 
versus the many, right? We have to say we can't cover everything in a in a PharmD degree. And if we can tease out what the absolute core is and focus on that well, along with developing lifelong learning skills, then we have so many opportunities with residency, postgraduate education, practice, uh, skill development. Um, it's not going to limit our profession, but it's going to ensure that really all of our graduates can do a very critical core. And I think, Jan, I think that's one of the issues with pharmacy education is that we see all of these things that we want uh, pharmacists to be able to do in the profession. And they're all great things, whether it's entrepreneurism and research and advocacy and all of that later. But we tend to like, okay, so we've got to do, we've got to teach it all right here in our four years versus we're going to teach how to be a pharmacist in four years. And then they're going to learn those other things in in residencies, PhDs, fellowships, on the job. We got to get it all right here. And I don't think we can't teach all of that in four years. We could teach it all, but we need to expand the the five years, the six years, the seven years or whatever it might be. But that's where I think, you know, sort of, you know, many programs would use the ACCP toolkit, which is, a lot of great work goes into that, but it's it's pretty massive, even as it is. Whereas other fields, such as physics, have gone the core concepts route. Core concepts, I think they came down to four. Four foundational concepts. I mean, there's some, some stuff embedded in there. One of the things that we're talking about trimming, when we talk about, well, how do we trim, is we have to recognize We're also trimming people's identities by getting them to talk about this. Their identity is tied to this stuff. And so loss aversion is one of the most powerful cognitive biases. Losing something is much more powerful than gaining something. Yeah. But so I was my point that I was trying to make, though, the struggle we could, I think, as a profession, come down and come up with some foundational concepts that all graduates should have. The problem is that is not the essence of the NAPLEX exam. It's not on a a group of foundational pieces of knowledge and go ahead and look anything up you want on the exam to fill you in to inform a decision that you have to make. No, you have to know it off the top of your head, all of these details about all these drugs, right? And the second is when our students get out into practice and they don't know about specific drugs and doses, you can bet we hear it from preceptors that they don't know anything. They don't know the details that I know. And why aren't you teaching them those details? Why aren't they fully prepared the day one they walk into my ID practice knowing all the names of the drugs, the doses, and the indications? So it's a, it's a fundamental problem that we have is not only does our licensure examination expect a fund of knowledge that's huge, but so do every practitioner out there expect you to have that fund of knowledge the moment you walk into the practice setting. I sense a, an underlying theme to... Uh, a lot of the arguments and the conversations around content and hoarding, um, and 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 we don't, I don't think, name it, but I would call it fear. You know, the the fear that if we change something, namely cut back, then our graduate won't be well prepared. The fear that 
I will be chastised for not doing a good enough job in preparing them. There's just, there's a lot of fear as faculty trying to make these decisions that we might screw it up. And how do we deal with that? Also, I would say a fear that my content isn't as important as somebody else's content. Right. Talk about fear inducing. Now you've just taken my job away. So what solutions? Um, you know, we've described the problem. We've described how we all want to be advocates for our content, but we all here at least recognize that foundational principles are going to serve anyone better in whatever path they take as long as they continue to grow and develop over time, right? And that's true for all of us. So what are the solutions to this problem? No, I have a couple of um, ideas about solutions. First off is the Council of Faculties, Faculty Affairs Committee worked on this all year and came up with several recommendations at the academy level, institution level, individual faculty member level. And um, that report's available at, at the Connect site on AACP website if you're a member of Council of Faculties. Um, but, but thinking about how we got to some of those solutions, I love the experiment in that nature study where they simply offer subtraction as a potential solution and folks were more likely to, if it's just on the table. So I think we can do some easy solving just by doing that. So if you think about your curriculum committee has a course approval process every year, have a queue on that course approval process that asks, what have you done to streamline it. I think that we need to do that with the committees that we charge at all levels, that when you're charging a committee to look at a new emerging topic area, their natural tendency is going to say, add that to the curriculum. <laughs> like we know that's happening. They need to be charged to consider other alternative options. Um, so I think just simply cueing folks to look at subtraction or, or integration or streamlining or, or whatever, I think is one reasonable place to start. I also love the idea of, um, you know, again, when you're writing a manuscript with other co-authors, you're adding, adding, everyone's like, oh, you should add this. You should talk about this in more depth. And, and then you get to a manuscript that is 7,000 words. And, and then the peer evaluators are saying, add this, add this. And then the editor at the bottom is saying, oh, and by the way, cut 2000 words, right? So we've all been there where you get to a point with something where you're specifically looking at it through an auditing subtraction lens. And I think we have to have key thought leaders or specific people in our, in our organizations, in our curriculum committees that are that person. Your, your job is to bring us around and make sure that we are taking that time to look at a problem through that specific lens so that we're not losing track of it. And then at the higher level, I really think we need to continue working very strategically with the academy and with our accreditors to also make sure that we're looking at things through that lens. 
So Jen said the last two things are exactly what I was getting ready to say in just a different form. I mean, there is some things to start at the top to help us narrow down and simplify. And so one of the recommendations from the Council of Faculty from the academy level is to develop a unified pharmacist professional identity of exactly what that is we're going to do so that everyone can be teaching just to that versus all of these differing ideas of what a pharmacist should be able to do. Then then that other thing, Jen, was looking at things through that lens of simplicity. You know, just as we've started looking at things uh, through a lens of diversity and inclusion, I mean, it's sort of this the same thing of just having that eye and making that salient. Now my eyes have been open, thanks to you, Jen. Everything I look at now is I'm looking at it, and it's like, okay, how could this be easier? And every time I see the word add, I think of you, Jen. It's like, no, I'm, I'm, all, I'm automatically just kind of checking to see, is, is addition the right thing here, or is it not? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And I wonder, to your point, Stuart, you know, what's what's the solution? And I wonder if our the way we talk about this and the terminology that we use, I mean, subtraction just invokes loss, battle, you know, like, how can we talk about what we're trying to do here in a way that doesn't incite so many emotions and allows us to focus on our students and the efficiencies we're trying to create, the power and the learning that we're trying to create, but minimizing and subtraction and all that is so tough. It's such a great point because Tina brought that up to me very early on when we were talking about it in our curriculum committee, that hoarding, bloat, um, subtraction, all of those things um, can come across quite negative and words matter. So I, I completely agree with you there. The good news is um, Lighty Klotz's book, he actually has uh, a table of sort of what they call positive valence words and negative valence terms. Negative valence words would be like hoarding, bloat, subtract. And he, he kind of walks you through a way of describing things where, you know, the emphasis is on subtraction, but without sounding, without triggering your loss aversion bills. Yeah. So with that, I think we're at the end of our conversation today, but I think the resources and particularly the book Subtract is a great place to start to begin to think about how simplifying and reducing things actually can result in better outcomes. And that's the whole point, right? So if we can get everybody on the same page to have a conversation about those things and thinking about our own work too, how do we simplify and reduce to get a better outcome, we're going to be in a better place. Stuart, can I just say a big shout out to all the um, FICA fans who came up to us at the meeting to talk about listening to the podcast and what they were getting out of it. I was, it was very humbling to, to hear from, you know, people individually. And I really encourage people to send in topics for us. And with that, I'm going to say goodbye. 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 Cheers. See ya. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Pharmacy Fika, a podcast where we enjoy coffee and conversations. If you liked this episode, please pass it along to a colleague and be sure to rate us. You can share your reactions on Twitter at Pharmacy Fika, but please be kind. This is a safe space. Got a question or want to suggest a topic for a future episode? Leave us a voice message 
at speakpipe.com slash pharmacyfica. Bye for now. Namaste. Das Vidanya. Au revoir.